0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We will be giving our attention to Psalm 23, um, which reads as follows. So hopefully you have your scriptures ready, or again, you can follow along on the screen. But Psalm 23, a Psalm of David, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows." Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. As you well know, Psalm 23 is among the most readily recognized portions of the scriptures by popular culture. It's also among the most beloved psalms in the, the, excuse me, it's one of the most beloved psalms in the Psalter and even in the scriptures as a whole by believers. And so you have a a unique situation where we could go out into the community and cite from part of Psalm 23, and people would maybe not know exactly, oh, that's Psalm 23 or what you're referring to, but uh, it sounds familiar, and doesn't it have something about the valley of the shadow of death or or something about God as shepherd, and there's a familiarity with it. And certainly within the church context, it's almost a, well, of course I know Psalm 23. It's a a beloved psalm that we've given lots of attention to in private reading, devotion, maybe it gets read in different uh, particular contexts, but we're very familiar with it in terms of, again, culture and certainly the church culture. And I realized only a few days ago that while I've written much of what I will draw from today, I've actually only taught from Psalm 23 on various occasions by way of drawing out principles and precepts applicable to other shepherding passages, but I've not to present taught through it. So again, I've drawn from its principles, I've, I've made reference to it, I've used what the, some of its beauties and its glories and, and like matters, but never actually taught through it, at least not taught through it in the United States, only overseas." Now, the context for teaching Psalm 23 in places like Ecuador, and I believe I also uh, was teaching through it when I was in Kenya, was that I found various opportunities to, to lead some uh, classes for local pastors. It's not that um, necessarily I'm the, the pastor par excellence, you know better than that, but there are certain contexts when you've been afforded more training and opportunities, and there's situations where people well, take advantage of the fact that, well, I need some special instruction opportunities. And so I've led different courses for local pastors and church leaders on discipleship and pastoral ministry. And I think in view of that, you're you're grossly remiss to teach pastors or those preparing for pastoral ministry if you do not charge them to have a clear view to the work of shepherding. Otherwise, call your work something else but don't assume the role and charge of pastor if you've not labored to walk in the shadow of the good shepherd. Preach all you want, wow people with your insight and skill of speech, write books, draw crowds, but do not assume the identity of the one whose charge is the care of God's flock if you haven't given yourself to the work of shepherding, which is impossible without a view to understanding of what we'll work through today. Now, I understand that I'm not leading a course on pastoral ministry right now, so it's not a charge where I'm saying, don't you dare stand in a pulpit, don't you dare take on the title of pastor if you haven't labored in the shadow of this. That's why I was previously giving it such special attention. It's why it's particularly of value to my own heart. But I recognize what I am doing today is opening the scriptures in the context of a local church's worship service. And for me, that's the optimal place to walk through this beloved psalm. And especially with you today, in part because in God's good providence, some of you are suffering the pains of mourning and loss. Others of you have known these seasons, and I hope with them also the sweetness of being comforted by the scriptures. But there's also precious ties to some of our most recent engagements in other texts, including our final works, or excuse me, our final weeks in the book of James, our work in Psalm 22 on Resurrection Sunday, our work in Old Testament survey, notably the book of Numbers, and even our work in introducing the book of Galatians. So let me briefly draw out these associations for you. As most of you will recall, James's final two sections of the book included, among other things, the local church's pastor's compassionate and restorative care of the spiritually weary and also a closing exhortation to those who engage in the challenging work of turning back or restoring one from, who, from among the flock who is strayed from the truth. That's how James finished his letter. Now, in Psalm 22, we walk through David's path from the despairing pain of feeling forsaken to calling upon Israel, the nations, and even those yet to be born to worship the Lord who hears his people. And as Psalm 22 developed, David expressed the longtime shepherding care that both he and his fathers had, who had preceded him had experienced. He, he testified, there's not a moment in my life in which you haven't cared for me and the likeness that a shepherd cares for his people. In the book of Numbers, we discuss the Lord's care of Israel and that as they wandered through the wilderness and as they came to the, the precipice of the promised land, they also prepared for a transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua seasons and moments that were framed with a view to the Lord's shepherding care. As Asaph reminds us in Psalm 78, verse 52, quote, but he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And in view of this transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua, Moses asked that the people not be left without a shepherd. Quote, may Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so the congregation of Yahweh will not be like sheep who which have no shepherd? Numbers 27, verses 16 to 17. Finally, in our study of Galatians last week, as Pastor Matt framed the tone of the letter for us, we observed that Paul had a, a righteous anxiety for the Galatians that they would not forfeit their standing in Christ. And we know that while we might stumble a bit over the idea of a righteous anxiety, we could also reframe it as a pastoral burden as such as how he expressed these same kinds of concerns to the Ephesian elders in his departing charge to them, where he states, quote, "...be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock." And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Acts 20, 28 to 31. And you saw that very clear language. I was trying to emphasize it a little bit, but the flock, the, the, the God's flock, Christ's flock, shepherd them, care for them. And so we understand that righteous anxiety he was expressing toward the Galatians that some might drift, stray, or struggle. So, that being said, we're not treading new ground here. We're simply refreshing foundations by way of a simple but beloved psalm, one that not only frames a proper view of pastoral leadership or even our care of one another, but first has a view to the Lord, who is our chief shepherd, who will never in any way prove deficient in his care supplying our needs, our rest, our restoration, our clear paths, our protection, and so much more. So let's walk through this simple but beautiful and beloved psalm together now. And as we do, I will frame it with a view to having two primary parts or divisions. I've provided that there in the screen for you, verses 1 through 4, the good shepherd and his sheep, the good shepherd and his sheep, and verses 5 through 6, the good shepherd and his people. Now, the way I view this first section um, is as a metaphor of a shepherding care. Is, is, excuse me, as a shepherd caring for his sheep. That's obviously very plain. It's plain enough, and all but universally acknowledged that that's exactly what David is doing in these first four verses. However, many persons and commentators and Bible teachers um, view the second section as a new metaphor, as though he set the first one aside. Now he's introducing another one, that of a host caring for those participating in his banquet. However, as you can see, I'm going, to argue more, or I'm going to argue for more continuity than I think that this more popular position provides. But we'll come back to that soon enough. But I just want you to have a view to that, that I see the shepherding image carrying all the way through. Now, let's first consider the psalm's authorship. So the, the header of the psalm also provides us good information to include authorship. So we see that it's David, King David, the king who was also a prophet, a beloved Servant of God, a magnificent worshipper. So David's authorship is established here, and while affiliated broadly with the Psalter as a whole, you often see the Psalms of David. I think Charles Spurgeon has kind of his magnum opus work, which I would argue would be the Treasury of David, or excuse me, something that effect where it's basically as a view to David and the Psalms being united together as a as a whole as it were. And as best I know, um, obviously David is a major, major. Um, contributor to the Psalter, uh, with 75 psalms that we can directly attribute to him, 73 in the Psalter itself, which makes some reference to it, two of which the New Testament also makes reference back to David as author. But we also know that um, maybe he wrote some others. We're not sure. Some of them don't have um, somebody that's been attributed to, but we know that he didn't write the whole of the Psalter. However, I think it's safe presumption that we're— speaking to a psalm that has clearly been attributed to him, namely Psalm 23, recognized the shepherd king contributed this most precious of the psalms, and arguably so. Psalm 1 foundation, Psalm 2 foundation, Psalm 119, magnificent, but there's a preciousness to this one, and it was specifically provided to us in God's providence by David. Now, That being said, we don't have the historic context of David's writing the psalm. Some have made reasonable guesses as to what season of life he was in, maybe what he was experiencing, and they've argued well in terms of grammar and wording, and they've drawn out some nuances, but I'm not persuaded that we can make anything but a firm or decent guess. So we have nothing definitive regarding the immediate context of its writing. However, what we do have is a generous history of the person and work of David, which includes effectively a lifelong role of serving as a shepherd, both of sheep and of God's people, which gives the psalm an even greater richness. So we're introduced to David as he's being called in from the fields by Samuel, where he was shepherding sheep. Quote, and Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the young men? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is shepherding the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not turn around until he comes, For Samuel sixteen eleven, And then as David transitions from being a, a young shepherd and a, a, a history that he draws from, he makes reference to that testimony and those experiences. And David now transitions from the, um, the shepherd boy to the anointed king, and then ultimately to the crowned king. And we see at that point in time, quote, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. And it wasn't just because, oh, that's a, he would relate to that. That'd be a really good way to say that. No, there's a clear intentionality to that that supersedes David himself. So the shepherd boy, so now the shepherd king. So you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David cut a covenant with them in Hebron before Yahweh. Then they anointed David king over Israel, 2 Samuel 5, 1-3. So while we lack the precise historic backdrop for this psalm, we can note that it has a clear value brought to it as it was penned by a righteous man who shepherded both sheep and men. And with this, we come to its opening clause when David states, Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is my shepherd. That, I will argue, is the core, the thesis to the whole of this psalm. And whereas the opening line of 23 has, was one of the most haunt, excuse me, the, the opening line of Psalm 22 was arguably one of the most hauntingly weighty introductions to a psalm, the opening here is one of the most incredibly comforting. And just as we cannot properly fathom the burdens that brought David to cry out in Psalm 22 as he opened that one with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can't imagine the weight of that moment. So also, I'm not sure that we can properly or fully appreciate the magnificence of his now stating, Yahweh is my shepherd. How extraordinary this affirmation. Yahweh is my shepherd but just as we ought not walk through another man's flower garden and begin plucking what we find beautiful so that we might have it as our own, we must ask now with such an intimate statement that Yahweh is my shepherd. Was this a matter of Yahweh's personal shepherding was it limited to david we want to be good students of the scripture we want to recognize okay where is it in redemptive history and who is stating and what are they say? was this something that david could declare and people could say that's amazing david we are so encouraged and that's a blessing to know that yahweh is so intimately and faithfully caring for you do we have to leave it there no this psalm was not restricted to david The Lord was not exclusively David's shepherd, and the intimacy expressed here does not restrict the scope of its application, but rather draws out the personal nature of the relationship that the shepherd has with his people, both corporately and individually. Now, when addressing the very personal nature of this psalm, commentator Arnold Rhodes stated, God is often referred to directly or indirectly as the shepherd of Israel, but infrequently as the shepherd of an individual. This psalm is therefore all the more remarkable for its emphasis upon God's care of an individual sheep. And while the contemporary propensity is to view all such matters with an intensive individuality, that tends to be where a lot of our, our thoughts drift when we approach the scriptures. What, how does it apply to me? How do I fit in this? And, and what, what is God revealing of himself to me as an individual? Well, that's not always been the case of how persons have approached the scriptures or how the, the Lord's even related to his people. So to hear that the Lord who cares for the corporate body of his people cares personally for you, that's precious, particularly when it's the image of a shepherd that is employed. But again, we're viewing some things from a very clear vantage point that not all naturally held to, namely the esteeming and valuing of the role and work of shepherding. So when I say that's precious, that's precious. There's a lot of cultures and communities, and especially throughout history, that say a shepherd? Mm. King, yeah, yeah, or rock, or, or uh, a strong leader, but a, a shepherd. Well, this is a role that was not especially glamorous as the nomadic style of shepherding employed here would include a life with the livestock, night and day caring for them, being in the field, directing them to proper places of food and water, Recovering those who drift and wandering, warding off threats and dangers, binding wounds and all other like necessities. But it's not the soft and comfortable context of the work that endeavors this metaphor to us, is it? No, because there is no soft or um, gentle expression. This is is hard work. This is uh, a work full of of odor and and stress and and strain. No, it's rather the comprehensive labor of love that the shepherd provides for those under his care that's attractive to us. It's the night and day provision. It's the night and day care. It's the leading. It's the caring. It's the protecting. A work that is far from soft and rarely comfortable. It's exhaustive and challenging. And while not everyone needs to have the same story, we all know that experiences do shape us, especially exhaustive and challenging ones. And some of the most consequential leaders in Israel's history shared this in their resume, that of being shepherds. So we think about Joseph, he shepherded the flocks along with his brothers, and it was this loathsome identity and role that ultimately directed his family's path to the land of Goshen, where they thrived before the Lord extracted, as it were, a nation from within a nation. Moses, a fugitive with a world-class education, tended to his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. And as we noted, David spent his formative years in the fields tending to the sheep the lambs entrusted to his care, a work that he tenaciously embraced and from which he was called out from that he might be anointed the king of Israel and as such, shepherd the nation of Israel. And as we've noted, it was not only a good character building job for future leadership, but shepherding was how leadership was often viewed as well. So as we've already noted, when Moses' time was known to be coming to a close, it was his request that Israel not be left without a shepherd, a leader that comprehensively and sacrificially cared for the Lord's people. And as we've already noted, at David's coronation, it was stated that this shepherd turned warrior and now king would do what? He would shepherd the nation. And even bad leadership was expressed as serving in a shepherding role, and it was their failure as such to maintain the integrity of the flock. Quote, For the shepherds have become senseless and have not sought Yahweh, therefore they have not prospered. And all their flock is scattered. And so we see that even bad leadership was viewed under the standard of how are you shepherding my people? And by contrast, in a context of restoration, it was also stated through the prophet Jeremiah that the people's leadership would be viewed as faithful shepherds. Quote, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will shepherd you on knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 3.15 and again, we see this language of restoration, incorporating a view to the people being led by a faithful shepherd, a good shepherd, one of a likeness to David. Quote, and my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my judgments and keep my statutes and do them. Ezekiel 37:24. And so when we look to Messiah, we look to the greater son of David, it wasn't just To a unifying and righteous king, it was a unifying righteous king who shepherded the people. So this is not a casual image, a trite metaphor that David reached for because it was familiar to him. No, this was a consistent expression of how God would have his people cared for and led. And with this, we rightly note here that it was not an affirmation that, quote, Yahweh will provide a shepherd, that that captured our affections and joy here. No, no. It was something so much more grand. It was Yahweh is my shepherd. Will he provide shepherds? Yes. Will part of the restoration of his people include shepherding leaders? Yes. But it's not just that Yahweh will provide good shepherds, but that he is my good shepherd. And what we could draw on various texts here that affirm Yahweh as the shepherd of both individuals and his corporate people, I think some of the most impactful examples come by way of rebukes as they bring what is implicit to the fore regarding Yahweh's provision, care, and affection for his flock and every sheep therein. And so again, we're going to first look at Jeremiah 23, 1-4, and when we look at rebukes, you have to recognize, yes, it is a rebuke, but what's happening in a rebuke, it's, it's as he stated to Ezekiel in terms of expressing his wife who, who, would, who would pass, and he was not going to mourn her. Ezekiel, I'm going to take the apple of your eye away. There's, a, there's an intimacy to that. And when you think about you've, you've done these things, but don't touch my people, that's the kind of tone. And that tone draws something out, draws something out. And I might be upset with somebody coming in here and rabble-rousing, but you mess with my family. Now you've just elevated, and you're going to hear my thoughts on my care for my people. And so Jeremiah 23, 1-4 begins to draw out the tone of that shepherding heart of God for his people. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are shepherding my people, you have scattered my flock and banished them and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the land where I have banished them and cause them to return to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will shepherd them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be left unattended, declares Yahweh. And so you hear, you failed to care for my people. And he doesn't just leave it there. He's that's that's my flock. You've, you've not just been bad leaders or unrighteous leaders, but you've, these are my sheep. And I will restore them and I will shepherd them and I will make sure that shepherds are put in place and I will restore them to their pastures. And then Ezekiel 34, 1 to 24, a significantly longer passage, but one that emphatically draws this out. So again, Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 24. And then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says Lord Yahweh, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been shepherding themselves. Should not the shepherds shepherd the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You sacrifice the fat sheep without shepherding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, and the diseased you have not healed, and the broken you have not bound up, and the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you searched for the loss. But with strength and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was none to search, seek or search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh, as I live, declares Lord Yahweh, surely because my flock has become plunder, my flock has become even food for all the beasts of the field for a lack of shepherd, and my shepherds did not seek for my flock, but rather for the shepherds shep- the shepherds shepherded themselves and did not shepherd my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will seek my flock from the hand from their hand and make them cease from shepherding the flock. So the shepherds will not shepherd themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I myself will seek my sheep and care for them. As a shepherd cares for his herd and the day when he is among his sheep, which are spread out, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. I will shepherd them in a good pasture and grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and be shepherded in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will shepherd my flock, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will search for the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd them with judgment. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord Yahweh Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should be shepherded in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pastures, or that you should drink of the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must be shepherded on what you tread down with your feet and drink what you foul with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust all the sickly with your horns until you've scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plunder. And I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will shepherd them himself and be their shepherd. And Yahweh will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. Yahweh have spoken. That, that's a good shepherd. And while David plainly would not have had the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel to frame his view to, his, to this statement, he knew how much was packed into this critical foundation from which all that will flow follows, or all that follows flows, namely that Yahweh is my shepherd. And what Jeremiah picked up, what Ezekiel picked up, is what David intimately knew the shepherd cares for the flock. He leads them, protects them, cares for them, binds them up, restores them, feeds them, all the totality of such a work. And anybody that fails to do that is a shepherd that will be judged. But Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. The scope of which David is speaking when he states that he shall not want or shall not lack is, is comprehensive, includes not just the essential elements of physical sustenance, but that which will also satisfy and sustain his inner man. And perhaps when he spoke so confidently of the Lord's generous and faithful provisions, he was reflecting on the rich accounts of redemptive history that we too are currently giving attention to in our second hour together. A history that would have reminded him that when Yahweh shepherded his people through the wilderness and route to the promised land, he provided manna from heaven, water from a rock, and quail from the sky. Then David speaks of not being uh, deficient in need, um, but rather he speaks from the vantage point of, again, Redemptive history a as well from experience that he could also draw from. And he perhaps had things in mind, such as Deuteronomy chapter 2, where Moses reminded Israel, quote, For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness these 40 years. Your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Deuteronomy 2.7 Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or maybe he had in view not only what Israel was miraculously provided in the wilderness, but what they so freely walked into also, remembering Moses' words about that which the people would soon experience. For Yahweh your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And so you will eat and be satisfied, and you shall bless Yahweh your God for the good land which he has given you. Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 through 10. Again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He cares for his people. And while not having a moment of history to to precisely frame the timing of Psalm 23, we know that David did find worshipful satisfaction in the affirming of this truth, as he also wrote in Psalm 34, verse 10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who inquire of Yahweh shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, we don't know the historical backdrop to Psalm 23, but we do know the historic backdrop to Psalm 34. And it's quite telling that he would make that statement in that psalm because it was written after David, in need of merciful provisions, received the showbread and Goliath's sword from the priest before going on to Gath where he feigned madness while running for his life. And yet even there he would affirm that the righteous lack nothing. Because the Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want, right. I will not want, and David knew and affirmed this truth to hold because the Lord again was his shepherd, and again Yahweh is my shepherd, that is the the thematic core of this psalm, and now I shall not want lays a foundation of That which the next few verses build on as the good shepherd provides, provides rest, provides sustenance, provides restoration, and provides clear paths. And with this, we come to the first expression of provision. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now, Perhaps you recall that we've just taken note of some of this language in Ezekiel 34. I know I was reading quickly and a bit emphatically, but we saw some of this same language in Ezekiel 34, verses 14 and 15, where the Lord stated, I will shepherd them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and be shepherded in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will shepherd my flock, and I will make them lie down, declares Yahweh. So how, we might, how might we uh, understand this language? Specifically, the comfort found in a shepherd making his sheep lie down. Well, apparently, sheep have to know that there's provision and that they are secure before they will take to a resting position on the ground. And being that these elements of provision and security are outside of themselves, they are left to look to the shepherd if they're going to find proper rest. Therefore, it's in his provision and care that the shepherd makes the sheep to lie down. And in this, David saw that it was those whom the Lord shepherds that truly know rest. Those who have found his care sufficient and his protection sure. Those are the ones that are made to lie down. So it's, it's a bit curious, is it not? When we, not to speak of David, when we all but resist the grace of rest, not physical rest, I don't want you chastising me for that, but resting in the the comfort, the care, and the provision that Yahweh, the Lord, has provided, our good shepherds provided. Particularly when we've been so well provided for and protected, what is it that would obstruct, what is it that would awaken us, what is it that would provoke us to be robbed of the preciousness of rest when the Lord, who is our good shepherd, and therefore we lack nothing, causes us to lie down. Beloved, we are made to rest, to lie down, to find our Lord's provisions sufficient. And a most natural companion to being well cared for and in such finding rest is restoration. The making of that which is weak and weary whole again, strong again. It's part of what rest accomplishes. It's part of what the good shepherd fosters and and works in his sheep. And I'm persuaded that is what Dave is expressing and what is commonly translated here now as he restores my soul. Naturally follows that he causes them to lay down. Or as the Net Bible has phrased it, he restores my strength. And for some of you, I hope James 5 is coming to mind here. Not only because I primed you for such in my introduction this morning, but because that's exactly how James finishes his letter. James, who I'd argue was was a magnificent shepherd of Christ's flock, had a view to shepherding services that meant restoring the weary. Notably in the command for the weary to call upon the elders or the shepherds of the local flock. And and let's press that connection further. And as we do recognize that calling upon the elders in the context of the local church is really a fail-safe. It's a mercy available to you, but we do not want to live there. We do not want to, our habit to be one of having to exercise the most intensive form of treatment, as it were. And I state that not to dissuade anyone who is weary from coming to us, but rather to encourage you that our common diet of care is sufficient. The good shepherd's pattern of care is one of restoring And that is our optimal expression in these matters, looking to and finding restoration in the Lord's generous care for his sheep. So our good shepherd provides generously and restores mercifully. And he leads faithfully. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Here David goes on to testify, being led in ways that honor the Lord and reflect the perfections of his character. This is a leading on right paths, and as such is another element of our protection and care. And this is the nature of our shepherd's leading, a leading that proves to be the most direct and least worrisome path for his sheep, but also a leading that properly honors his name, his reputation, and his glory. He leads us in this manner for his name's sake. And as I reflected on this, I thought about Denise being gifted some fancy soap yesterday. And yes, That sentence is lost on me too. I don't understand the idea of gifting fancy soap. But the particular scent was of interest as it was titled Narcissist. And apparently it's her favorite scent. Though she assured me it was the scent that she found attractive, not because of the name, but because of the scent itself, and that it was randomly selected when gifted to her. Now, we find such amusing because the narcissist is one who is wholly consumed with themselves and not simply in being selfish, but wholly self-focused, self-oriented. But soap sense aside, we recognize this character quality is obviously not only unattractive, it is ungodly. Or perhaps we should say that it is fleshly or carnal, because God alone possesses the rights to receive all glory. And we see this stated so plainly in Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. And so again here, David reminds us that the Lord will always operate for his own great namesake. And while some may squirm at this, we must recognize that such a pursuit of the esteeming of the Lord's own name is a stabilizing hope and anchor that all creation needs. Because for him to do anything with a primary view to others elevates their glory above his own, creating the paradox of God being an idolater for failing to properly esteem his own glory. And so here we see something that is preciously encouraging, that we who are but dust, Psalm 8 are being so intimately and perfectly cared for by the Lord of glory who exercises expressions of his wonder in generously providing, caring for, and leading a people that he chose for himself. And with this, we now come to what is perhaps one of the most high points of comfort for many. This is likely why broader culture draws in the psalm, even those, again, who have no reasonable grounds to lay claim to its encouragement as they neither know the Lord or the sweetness of his company. But for those who do know the shepherd, it is quite precious to be able to confidently affirm with David that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the valley of the shadow of death is commonly concluded to be a picture of the deep ravines that shepherds and their sheep would have to traverse at times, possibly even in pursuit of necessary sources for their consistent care. As such, the elements of danger would have potentially included both wild animals and enemies. But we are reminded that even here the shepherd is a leader and constant companion. Therefore, we need not fear any evil, as the Lord is not simply a, a courtesy companion, but he who knows no threats and who will see his sheep to safety. And remember, the good shepherd makes, he restores, he leads, and here he accompanies. Therefore, though I walk through the valley, I will not fear and you know there will be valleys. You need to know that. There are, will be valleys, dark portions on your path. And in view of that, I think about that in terms of shepherding and care and the charge that's been provided, especially 1 Peter 5. I think about that. That's why it was the first message I ever preached as a member of Grace Bible Church, the charge to shepherd the flock of God among you, because there will be dark corners, valleys, and ravines, as it were. And this, with this, I think about the counsel that I gave a friend some years ago, a matter that we Briefly discussed when reviewing the conclusion of James together in Sunday school, but once more, this friend had made some curious choices in her new church home, ones that were in no small part influenced by the relaxed culture and teaching that was available, a relaxed culture that made it easy uh, to come to and easy to bring those who were disinterested in the things of God. That's who you want populating the church, right? And while she acknowledged the folly of such wisdom, I think she had in some measure concluded that her and her husband's personal maturity would allow them to get by there. But with this, I asked her a question of the care that she would receive when she went into the dark valleys. Would those pastors answer her family's call late in the night? Would they even know their names? Would they render the the delicate and challenging care that is required in moments and seasons that can only be prepared for with days of diligence and provocative, or proactive care and prayer well before the dark valleys come. And she had to acknowledge, probably not. Probably won't know my name, probably wouldn't know who my phone calls from, probably wouldn't be able to render proper care. But don't you understand that such is the nature of our good shepherd and such is why it must be expected of his under-shepherds who have been entrusted with the immediate and most tangible care of his beloved sheep, because that is what he does. It's not that that's what we ought to do, it's what we ought to do because that's what he does. He sees his people through the valleys, and he cares for them, he protects them, and he reminds them that fear has no place to root itself in his company. Now we would be remiss to not see another important element here We rejoiced only a moment ago that the Lord directs us on the right path, the path of righteousness, or the paths of, uh, again, the right path, the path of righteousness. And then we rejoice that he accompanies us to the dark valleys. We, we We ought to find comfort in that. We ought to be encouraged by that. But our good shepherd did not simply accompany us. He never stopped leading us. And a precious element of his leading is that he brings his rod and his staff, his tools of protection and directing, tools of clubbing and leading. He's not standing aside ready to respond if things go too badly, but is proactively caring and in such provides a good comfort, a good comfort in the sense that we though we go through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not because, well, how did we end up there? It's because we've been led well. We've been led well by he who accompanies us. We've been led by, well, he who accompanies, protects, and cares for us. And then this brings us to the second portion of the text, but one that we'll move through much more quickly as it is in many ways an affirmation of the principles already established. And I've titled this portion of the text, The Good Shepherd and His People. Now, it is here that many commentators and teachers see the conclusion of the shepherding metaphor and the introduction of another one, that of Yahweh as a a generous host. And, And while I understand this conclusion, I'm not persuaded that it's necessary or even best for for two reasons. First, there's no clear change of identifying roles, only experiences. So whereas it was clearly stated, Yahweh is my shepherd, there's no subsequent statement that Yahweh is my host or any number of like titles or references. Second, because the shepherding metaphor has such a strong presence throughout the Old Testament, notably in expressing leadership and holistic care, it would appear to me that David is most naturally transitioning from the more overt metaphor to the working out of that metaphor in the lives of men with pictures that poetically express the nature of being generously cared for by our good shepherd. And we see this exact transition in David's own natural roles from the shepherding of sheep which he could naturally draw parallels to and the care of others to his role of shepherding Israel as their king, which served as a more direct expression of what was a magnificent metaphor. So again, you have the really heavy, clear metaphor, and then you have its working out of application in the lives of others, which is still a shepherding care. It's how a shepherd can care for a kingdom and not flock or lead them as a flock, as it were, but to lead them as a flock, but without being a flock. So again, it appears that the first portion of the psalm is a strong metaphor expressing the shepherd's care of his sheep to an outworking of that metaphor that expresses the Lord's care of his people, expressed with a picture of abundant, hospitable care. He states, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. They prepared a table Uh, The prepared table effectively sets the context for the celebratory blessing. It's the stage in which the Lord will exercise his kind abundance toward those in his affectionate care. Now, as to the silenced enemies, for me, truthfully it's unclear as to what the status of these enemies are beyond that they are in opposition to David and thereby in opposition to the Lord. And what is clear is that in the midst of the Lord's good provision and hospitable and merciful care, they are left to only observe, either in submission or they're simply impotent to contend with the sheep under the blessing and care of the shepherd. Now, the anointed head is a little bit more familiar, hopefully, to us, again, partly because of our work in James, expressing the hospitable care of refreshing and honored guest. The neglect of the service was among the rebukes that Jesus expressed towards Simon the Pharisee, who was hosting Jesus in his own home. You remember in Luke chapter 7, verse 46, Jesus stated to Simon, "'You did not anoint my head with oil.'" But she anointed my feet with perfume, the woman who was accused and rightfully by reputation regarded as a sinner. But you, Simon, you failed to to provide a, a normal expression of merciful, kind hospitality to anoint my head with oil. This was also a way of refreshing oneself, and its absence could potentially draw undue attention to one who was in a season of private fasting before the Lord, as we see in Matthew 6. But you... When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you, your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, verses 17 to 18. So while not a common practice today, you can imagine that in an arid context that does not have packaged lotions and moisturizing soaps at one's immediate disposal, how refreshing and in turn what an immediate blessing it would be to have oil poured over one's head. It is a hospitable and nurturing care. And with this final expression of hospitable care and provisions is that now of an overflowing cup. A poignant image of abundance. One who has been provided for generously and the provision is beyond what can naturally be contained. And the whole of this picture of a prepared table, repressed enemies, an anointed head, an overflowing cup plainly appear to be framed in the context of a celebratory image it's enough that the shepherd generously provides, gives rest, cares for, leads, and protects, and yet he does far more for his beloved. And we see with this the concluding elements of the psalm as David affirms that, Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Goodness and loving kindness. Goodness and loving kindness among the esteemed character qualities of God, who, as the psalmist reminds us, is good and does good, Psalm 119, verse 68. And the rich sweep of history is a constant reminder of his mercy, notably his mercy toward his people who humbly look to him. And as you may remember from perhaps general Bible reading efforts, when Solomon was consecrating the temple and the priests were leading the people in worship, it, were the, it was these truths that they placed their, their chief emphasis, their final emphasis. And it was these truths, these words that preceded the glory of the Lord, so filling the temple that they were compelled to leave. And so we read in Second um, Chronicles 5, 11 to 14 as follows. Now it happened that when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves with regard to divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres standing east of the altar and with them a hundred and twenty priests blowing trumpets in unison when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to give thanks to Yahweh and when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and when they praised Yahweh saying he indeed is good for his loving kindness endures forever. When the house then the house, the house of Yahweh, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. Second Chronicles five eleven to 14 And then what happens? Again, kind of drawing on from general Bible reading probably, but what happens next? Well, Solomon prays, after which the Lord consumes the burnt offering and sacrifices with fire and fills the temple to which the people observing and knowing this glory declare the very same truths that the priest had expressed only a short time before this. Quote, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of Yahweh filled the house and the priest could not enter into the house of Yahweh because the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh and all the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of Yahweh upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave praise to Yahweh saying for he is good for his loving kindness endures forever. 2 Chronicles 7 1 to 3. So plainly, goodness and mercy or his loving kindness are of extraordinary consequence in considering the Lord and his ways. And such are what overcome David in their pursuit of him. David knew what it was like to be pursued. He he knew what it was like to evade those who pursued him. And yet he says, loving kindness and God's mercy or God's goodness and his loving kindness, they pursue me and they overtake me. And their pursuit of all the Lord's beloved, they will overtake us. Because you will not outpace God's goodness, God's mercy, not now, not ever, as David affirms these things to be true for all the days of his life. And I would say it's assuring truths for us as well. That again, there's nobody whose testimony can include that I've outpaced God's goodness, that I've outpaced God's loving kindness. And these assurances have always and will always remain true for the Lord's beloved. You know this, you always will know this, that if that there is no outpacing God's goodness and mercy. But how could David have been so confident of such things? Well, because goodness has been what filled this entire psalm. God's goodness being expressed so generously in a range of positions, and positions and provisions. And to his loving kindness, we need to look no further than the identity of the shepherd, because it is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is his shepherd. The covenant God who expresses his loving kindness, his, his hesed, his covenant love toward his beloved, his mercy toward his people. And so therefore David can conclude, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. So plainly, David, his great, greatest joy, I would argue, was the presence of his good shepherd an observation easily secured in observing his life and so clearly expressed by his own testimony in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from Yahweh that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. Now I know I've gone long. I forgot we were having the Lord's Supper today. That probably didn't help. But I hope that our unanticipated engagement in a most beloved psalm has and will encourage you. Simply considering the fact that we can declare with David that the Lord is my shepherd. That's extraordinary. And such must press us. It doesn't just leave us there and think, wow, that's really neat. No, it has to press us to being comforted. Now that may sound strange. It's no stranger than being made to lie down. The Lord is my shepherd. That presses us to being comforted, presses us to being restored. Presses us to being confident and ultimately presses us to worship. When we can affirm with David, the shepherd king who looked to his Lord for comfort, care, provision, who in turn modeled when the Lord says, You failed to care for my people, but I will shepherd my flock. And what will I do? I will raise up a shepherd for them, my servant David. And who is that? When John 10, what does our Lord say? I'm the good shepherd. And such is the nature of the affectionate care that we know. We can't outpace that. And I hope we don't get over it either. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you indeed are good and do good. You're perfectly good. You care for us in ways that we will never fully or properly appreciate or, or even know to understand or to return thanks to you for. When we think about the, the care that is often provided uh, to children, there's sometimes, sometimes in maturity we have a better vantage point, sometimes when we become parents ourselves we have a better vantage point, but we'll, we'll never be in such a position to fully or properly appreciate the nature of the care we receive as you being our shepherd. And so Lord, we thank you that uh, we, we strive, we we, we struggle, we want to see, we want to understand the nature of your care, but it's going to leave us lacking, wanting more. But at the same time, it's also going to provoke us to a place of comfort, a place of uh, calm, a place of peace, a place of restoration, a place of, of being comforted, to recognize that uh, well again this, we could probably go out in the, the larger community and, and say something about the the valley of the shadow of death and people yeah, I've I've heard that, I'm familiar with that. But what they don't know is that when we traverse that valley, it's because our good shepherd led us down paths of righteousness for his great name's sake, and he's with us and will care for us, and will see us through such things. And we'll magnify his name, and yet in the magnification of your name you'll also so generously care for us. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you also that what David would have rejoiced to see, we have come to know for ourselves that that humble, faithful son of God could stand before his beloved and and declare, I'm the good shepherd. And what's the nature of the good shepherd? He lays down his life for the sheep. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you that it's because the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep, that we indeed are part of your flock, that it was a flock that was purchased by the blood of a lamb that's shepherded by the lamb. So, Lord, we we ask that you would uh, drive these truths deep into our hearts, that we wouldn't uh, treat such beloved and precious things as cliches, but, again, would be provoked to worship. And even now, as we turn our attention toward the Lord's Supper, what a precious reminder. This is the work of a shepherd who yielded and gave his son, as John declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb that would go on to shepherd his people. Lord, we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.